Hey guys, Steve here, Potent Phonics. Today we're going to talk about growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. Welcome to Growing With Fishes podcast, episode 324. Uh, this week, we have geneticist Dr. Anna Schwab with us. Thanks a lot for joining us this week. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. <laughs> um, if, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with the show, be sure to check out our other uh, 800 or so hours of content that we have out now uh, over on uh, Growing With Fishes podcast on your favorite platform, audio, or on YouTube if you want the video version. Um, before we get started, I also wanted to mention we do have the aquaponic uh, cannabis class, which you guys can check out at apmjclass.com. Uh, we do have a full-length uh, commercial and home-scale virtual uh, aquaponic cannabis class. It's over seven days worth of content. We have more content coming here, uh, coming January or February, whenever I can edit the next set of slides. Um, we also have a pest class as well for living soil and aquaponics. So if you guys want to check that out, be sure to check it out at thepestclass.com. Uh, or the aquaponic, or apmjclass.com for the aquaponic cannabis class. All right, um, one other little housekeeping note I wanted to mention as well, just because we announced this uh, this week, um, you should check out the virtual aquaponic cannabis conference January 14th and 15th uh, from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. We do have a huge list of speakers. We have a new, uh, new schedule out, it's up on my Instagram. Um, be sure to repost this, tell your friends, and, uh, and we'll see you guys again this year for the third annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. And we'll talk about more of that uh, at the end of the show. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, uh, Dr. Anna Schwab is uh, a geneticist in the cannabis field. She's done quite a lot of really cool work, which I think you guys are going to really enjoy today um, talking uh, and hearing about. Uh, and then we have... Um, uh, she's got done every a whole long list of paper. Oh, sorry, I'm having issues with the screen here this morning. Um, she has a ton of different uh, awesome research papers that she's worked on and um, just done a lot of work in the cannabis field across quite a few different uh, um, topics that I think are very important to our community. So we're really excited to have her on the show today. <laughs> um, do you want to introduce yourself? And uh, I'm sure I did, didn't even do a, a tenth the justice of, of what you've done so far. Uh, uh, I'll let you uh, introduce yourself a little bit better. Um, no, that was perfect. And I have actually never seen that layout of the screen before. I don't know how you did that. That's pretty, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, so I am Dr. Anna uh, in the cannabis industry. I did my PhD on cannabis genetics. So, you know, there's different arms of genetics in the cannabis industry, not in every industry, really. And I am a population geneticist. So my work really started um, looking at relationships within and among various groups of cannabis. So we could call like hemp one group, we could call, you know, THC type cannabis, another group. Um, we've got cultivated cannabis, we've got feral cannabis, we've got indica sativa hybrid cannabis. So, and then, you know, we've got strains. So that's where my research started. And I wanted to do it from, instead of like a researcher's perspective, like, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking to, you know, um, assemble the genome and find different genes and, bio, you know, pathways and things like that. I wanted to come at it from 
the other side of the counter, basically. So come at it from a consumer perspective, walk into a dispensary, purchase what's available, and then see, you know, see what we see. It was kind of like a investigative type of, uh, of yeah, investigative type studies that I did. So there's um, basically five chapters that I did for my dissertation. There's another one, uh, but it's still ongoing. I'm trying to get an undergrad or a, or, or a master's student to pick up that um, study. But the first thing that I wanted to do was answer the question, how come like Blue Dream from one dispensary is different from another dispensary? Um, because I didn't really know much about cannabis at the time, but I did know that like most people clone. And so I was like, well, they should be identical, right? If they're clones, genetically speaking. Um, and so I went around to different dispensaries and bought a bunch of cannabis and then tested them. And, you know, that's how, that's where it all started. So. Um, and you have a lot of, you have a lot of really cool pay. In fact, I was reading this one this morning. Um, can you tell us about this one? So this is human olfactory discrimination of genetic variation within cannabis strains. And it's something I think a lot of people really pride themselves on is being able to tell um, the stuff that they like from from aroma. Um, what what were your findings with that paper? Because it's definitely a topic that's hotly debated. So this one was a really interesting one. So this is was a direct spinoff of when I went to dispensaries and I found that not all the Blue Dreams are genetically identical. Actually, Blue Dream was pretty good. I think I had eight samples of that, but one of them was a clearly a genetic outlier, and that happened with twenty seven of thirty strains that I tested. And so. What we wanted to know is, could people like tell the difference if every, you know, like, so we had, and it was a double blind study. So we had like, let's say four blue dream samples, three of which were genetically identical, but one which was genetically different. Could people detect that difference? Or if they couldn't, you know, maybe that was a um, the reason why the Blue Dream label was on it because it smelled like Blue Dream. And so somebody was like, well, you know what? This looks like Blue Dream, smells like Blue Dream. So we're going to call it Blue Dream. And in either case, whether they could tell that it was a gen you know, genetically different, if it smelled different, or if it smelled the same, like either one of those stories would have been cool to find out. It turns out that people can smell the difference. Um, so like I said, it was double blind. So both the person conducting the smell portion of the study didn't know what the samples were, didn't know what the strain names were, didn't know which one was the genetic outlier for each strain. It was just 15 jars of randomly um, numbered jars. And then the participants were 55, just regular people who signed up to smell weed. Uh, <laughs> and it was that call out on social media. And uh, it was, you know, uh, more males than females, but you know, roughly 50-50. And we had various, you know, um, parameters that they had to fall into. Like there was an age limit. And if you were sick, you couldn't participate, things like that, that would mess up your smell potentially. Um, and yeah, they had an iPad and they would just smell and then check all that apply. So we had 40 different odor descriptors from things like, you know, uh, gas and cheese to skunk and, tobacco and mint and fruits and flowers and all kinds of things. Um, and what we did find was that, yes, the genetic outlier uh, had a different smell profile than the other samples in the strain. However, there was a huge amount of variation, even when the genetic identity was identical. 
and they were from different dispensaries. So presumably they were grown under different conditions indicating that environment plays a huge role in your final product. And that could be from growing conditions, but also maturity at harvest, how it was cured, how long, you know, how long it was, you know, sitting on the shelf for, were the conditions of storage correct? Like, and even, you know, you know, if, if you're a consumer, how long it's sitting around for before you uh, consume it, all those things are going to um, play a role in differences in scent profiles, right? So it was really interesting. We did have Durban poison with our control where we had three samples from different dispensaries that were all genetically identical. People sniffed those and there was a huge variation. So, um, and then when we published this, so that's what went into my dissertation. So if you read my dissertation and this paper, they're a little bit different. So the, um, the guy that I partnered with, Avery Gilbert, who is the scent scientist on this paper, uh, he was looking to kind of develop kind of like a lexicon, like how many flavor profiles are there in cannabis? And he kind of whittled it down to two major groups, one of which was, I think it's spicy, woody and citrus and the other one, I don't know. But there's basically a group A and a group B and all of the samples that we tested with my genetic analysis fell into one of those two categories as well. So it's a little bit different way of looking at it. I prefer what's in my dissertation than what we published, but that wasn't always up to me. So, I think you're muted. You keep muted. Yeah, you're. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, we did a bunch of work, or you did a bunch of work with um, uh, comparing structures of of cannabis sativas, um, and you, you actually worked with some of the federally produced stuff as well, which is a topic I definitely wanted to talk to you about. But um, uh, did you notice anything as far as um, you know terpene profiles to certain environments or? Um, anything regards to, you know, patterns with the terpene expressions um, with any of your studies, or is it strictly based off of uh, plant structure? So when, when these um, genetic population genetics studies say structure, um, it's referring to structure within populations or groups. So this particular study was looking at uh, basically, I mean, they're not arbitrary groups like we had wild collected what we assumed to be hemp. We didn't do any um, chemical analysis on any of those samples. So we would assume that they're hemp, but we don't know. They could have been tossed out of a VW bus in 1969. We don't know. Um, <laughs> and then um, cultivated hemp. We had a couple of high CBD types that wouldn't actually pass as hemp with point, you know, less than 0.3% THC, but they do have a high amount of CBD. And then we had, of course, indica sativa hybrid just to see if there's anything to that. And then we happened to have two samples from the National Institute on Drug Abuse grown at the University of Mississippi, which is the you know, research grade marijuana. And um, this was actually a cool study because it was an undergraduate research project. Um, Connor Han uh, Hansen, who's on the paper, came to me and you know he was double majoring in chemistry and biology. And he was working in the chemistry lab using this, you know, federally produced cannabis. But he also wanted to get some genetic work under his belt as well. And so I was like, well, let's design a little project for you. So there's only like 50 samples in this um, study. But um, what we found out was that hemp 
clusters really nicely together, there's a really strong signal that's only associated with hemp types. And then within the drug types, there are, um, there's more genetic, very well, more genetic, I guess less genetic structure, um, but they, they have a different type of signal. And there's some hemp signal that's mixed in with some of those, um, you know, drug type THC types, which is not surprising because it's all the same species. And also what I think was going on there is uh, autoflowers have been produced using, you know, ruderalis, which actually has a hemp type signal. So when you mix in some of those genes, now you've got like a hemp type one <laughs> cannabis plant, right? And so it gives off this hemp signal, I, I think. Um, but I don't know because, you know, from a customer, we don't get that information, right? We don't know if they're autoflowers or photo or whatever, because they don't tell you that. But what we did find out was that the samples from the University of Mississippi had were more closely genetically similar to all of the hemp type samples that we had. Um, but really, they weren't even that close to those. They were something completely anomalous, like very, very different. And I don't know, and we won't ever know, if that's because they have been recycling and propagating stuff that's left over from the when the program started in the 60s, or if it has been cross-pollinated by some of the close hemp farms or, or feral hemp that's just, you know, around, or if they're, you know, doing something sneaky and trying to grow something that's not going to produce good results when it's used in some sort of medical study. I don't know. But what we did find out is that it's not close to anything that's on the market or cultivated today. So in answer to your question, we didn't do any chemical analysis, so I don't know. It's purely just genetic identity. Yeah, I know that there's been a couple of, of reports of like seven or eight percent THC, I think is what I've heard from on the upper end of the, the Mississippi stuff. But uh, um, that's really interesting that it was an extreme genetic anomaly for that population. I know there was a recently another study too that was talking about part of China has like a unique genetic population as well or something like that. I think I remember reading. So that's, it's really um, bizarre that the, the Mississippi stuff is that rare, you know, that, that different. Yeah, and I don't know why it is it, why it looks like it does i know i eh, and they don't give you any information right so it wasn't even our lab that they sent stuff to our chemistry department was doing um research on cannabinoids uh like extraction techniques and things like that and they mm -hmm. were being supplied by nida for that research and they had the dea license the flower material that they had had to be in a fridge that was bolted to the floor and the wall, which are both concrete, and then had inside that, then the fridge had to be locked. Inside that fridge had to be a safe that was bolted to the fridge and also was locked. And only two people had keys. And every single, like anything that was taken from there had to be weighed had to be accounted for. The waste material had to be available to weigh as well. Like it was just in like every single little thing, like there was nothing to go missing, right? So I was like, well, but I just want the DNA. Like, I don't, I don't wanna take it. Like, I don't wanna take the plant material. You can have that. Like, can I just come up and extract some DNA and take yeah. it back to my lab? And so Richard, who's on that paper, uh, he was the professor that, lab like it was his lab that they were doing research in he was like you know I've read our contract like 
multiple, multiple, multiple times. It doesn't say anything about that. It just says the flower material has to stay in the lab. I was like, well, cool. I'm not taking <laughs> the flower material out of the lab. So let's do this. And he's old, but he was, I was like, I don't want to like, you know, um, risk anything. He's like, I don't, there's nothing like, I don't see any problem with it. So yeah, I was just really super lucky that I was able to get my hands on that because I guarantee if we called them up and said, hey, can we test the genetics of your um, research grade marijuana? There's no way in hell they would have sent it to us, right? And um, also when I told Daniela Vergara that she's a, also a cannabis, she's a genomicist though. When I told her that I had samples from NIDA, she's like, I want some. So I also extracted some for, uh, for their lab as well. So they also wrote a paper and were nice enough to put my name on it, even though I didn't really do any of the work. I just supplied them with DNA. There's a, uh, yeah, there's some interesting questions in chat about genomics that we're not going to touch on now. Because we've, we've covered some of those companies previously in, in many episodes. Yeah, and um, honestly, like my specialty, like I am not a genome, per, like I don't look at genes. I don't look at the whole genome. I don't do whole genome sequencing. My specialty is microsatellites and they are outdated, but they're really, really cheap. And I had zero funding for my PhD. So, but it was the right tool to answer the questions that I had. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean in reference to your work. I just, there was a couple of questions in chat. Yeah. People are asking. So, I like, I, sure I probably can't answer many of the questions that are, you know, genomics based just because I'm not a genomicist and I don't really, you know, like the, the part of the genetic part, you know, like I'm a population geneticist and I use different tools than genomics. And I'm trying to figure out, uh, I'm trying to get Daniela to teach me genomics. <laughs> Well, one thing too is that like not all cannabis genomicists are trying to GMO weed and make evil things like, you know, obviously at Phylos kind of put a bad taste in everyone's mouth in the industry. So um, after that whole, you know, debacle, which we've covered over six episodes, which is what my comment was about, um, uh, <laughs> a lot of people are kind of averse to anyone doing genetics work in the industry, you know, just after that whole incident. And and not everybody, you know, I, I know you're doing a lot of awesome work. Uh, I've also talked to um, a couple of other awesome geneticists that are are not out there trying to GMO, you know, outrageous you know, new strains. You know, they're just trying to honestly, that works. Like, honestly, genetic modification is not as easy as just, oh, you go in a lab and like insert a new gene. Like, it's not that easy. And it, with the cannabis genome, it's so repetitive and specific genes are are you know duplicated all over the place so you can't just turn off thc because we don't know like there could be link genes there could be upstream downstream effects like you tinker with something somewhere something else is going to happen somewhere else like it's just not that easy and otherwise there would be like gmo shit everywhere and there just isn't there really isn't like you know we have a few crops in the supermarket and stuff that are GMOs. But since, you know, genetic engineering has become a thing, it's really not that widespread. And honestly, it's really not that successful most of the time. And um, what else was I going to say about it? Um, yeah, it's really expensive and it's not very successful. And I don't know if you remember a few years ago, I think it was probably about five or six years ago now, there was a company that GMO'd uh, cannabis in the lab and were successful in making water the plant produce water soluble cannabinoids 
which not many, I don't know if, how many people know this, but like the cannabinoids are actually toxic to the plant. If they leak outside the cell, they're gonna kill the plant. Um, and that, where, where'd that go? Like they were successful, but I'm sure the plant didn't survive when they actually came to like cultivating it because, you know, whatever. And so um, I think breeders do a fantastic job of targeting traits, isolating traits, proliferating and and making sure that the traits that they're looking for are you know continuing or are brought up you know and and expressed in various lines i think um you know i don't think i think traditional breeding methods at the moment are more successful than genetic engineering at this point i think at some point that that will tip but I think breeders have, I mean, breeders do a phenomenal job of locating, you know, locating, locating the traits that they're looking for, isolating them, picking them out, selectively breeding and making great stuff. So yeah, that's uh, my comment anyway. There was <laughs> a comment in chat that says, it'd be cool to be able to identify skunk traits, for example, and be able to select for them. The, the issue with that particular problem is when you, it doesn't quite work that way. So this right. is why you see living soil and aquaponic systems having higher total terpene levels. You have to have those secondary microbes in the root system or on the leaf surface or whatever else to trigger those genes to activate and turn on yeah. and start doing their thing. And I think that's the component where a lot of the plant people that are trying to just bioengineer a plant are ignoring all the microbes and their, their impact on the DNA uh, expressions. And I think that that's, that's kind of where there's this like huge blind spot or for a lot of yeah. these plant uh, guys that are, are so focused on, on like a laser beam on just the cannabis plant when they need to focus on everything else as well. And I think that's, that's the part where a lot of these people are missing when they're chasing individual traits with genetics is that you might find, have a plant that has all the genes to be purple, but if it doesn't have enough molybdenum and the right temperature, it's not going to trigger to be purple. Right. So, yeah. uh, or, or the right altitude or, or yeah, UV exposure or whatever else. So, you can have a genome and you can say, yes, this plant has this gene and this gene and this gene, but will that plant actually express those genes? Don't know. It's, I mean, people are like that too. You can, you can go through, you know, genetic screenings and you might have, like, I might have the, you know, BRAC gene for breast cancer. Am I going to get breast cancer? Mm, like it doesn't always um, express. There has to be, there's other things in, in, in play. And you know, also there's linked traits and it's, you know, like if you get like red hair and freckles, they usually come together as a trait, you know, as a, as a set of traits. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is it's not always one gene, one trait. It could be multiple genes making a single trait, or it could be a single gene leading to multiple traits. So genetics is like really, really complicated and just, it's a little bit, uh, it's a lot more complicated than people are led to believe, especially like in media stories and things like that. Um, and when I start thinking about it, even as a geneticist, I'm like, oh my God, this is so fucking complicated. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the things I think is kind of going to end up being a benefit from the, the virus that shall not be named because um, of the YouTube gods. Um, the, uh, the the rapid DNA sequencing and rapid DNA testing, you're going to be able, I think in the next couple of years, be able to take a leaf sample and immediately get DNA analysis as to 
you know, what, what's going on with the plant, what, what diseases might be present based off of a web database that they can sequence against and everything else. That, and same thing with your soil. I think that's coming really, really soon because of the mm -hmm. rapid DNA sequencing technology that we've developed to treat this, this public health situation that we've had. Well, and, and just like this public health situation, you know, viruses and viroids and other pathogens are really good at mutating. So what works today might not work tomorrow. And what a certain pathogen infects today might infect something, you know, like we've always, you know, <laughs> back when I started, um, tobacco mosaic virus was this huge thing, like, oh, don't smoke around your plants, don't, you know, cause you're gonna give it, well, it turns out really tobacco mosaic virus hasn't really been observed in cannabis. There's very, very few positive confirmed cases of TMV in cannabis. Um, usually it's some other mosaic virus. Um, but that's not it's to say that tobacco mosaic virus can't mutate and start infecting other plants. That's what viruses do. They find a place to live. And, you know, once they're mutated to be able to infect something, they're going to do it. So, you know, um, tests that are developed today might not work tomorrow. And I, you know, it, it's, it's even possible that the tests for tobacco mosaic virus are not testing for or can't are you know like the primers aren't correct for the type of tobacco mosaic virus that is infecting cannabis if it is so it's looking for the tobacco mosaic virus that infects things like tomatoes and potatoes and though it could have mutated just enough to not be able to be amplified with the current test that we have i don't know that's just speculation on my part but i think about these things you know like our um the the you know the the a virus that shall not be named it's mutated right the tests that worked when it first happened are not the same tests as they are doing today they had to change the test to match you know the virus as it changes so um um so we we i've actually done seen a lot of different expressions of mosaicism uh that was clearly pathogenic um in, in cannabis over the years around the world and and just like you're saying that most of the time it's not tobacco mosaic virus. I think there's only um, two people that I know of that have confirmed tobacco mosaic virus that was actually like lab confirmed to be that. All the others, there's a, a study out of Israel and then there's one other guy that's done some uh, work. But most of the time, like you're saying, it's cucumber mosaic, it's uh, tomato mosaic, it's tomato streak virus, it's some other is there an alfalfa one? Yeah, alfalfa mosaic. There's arabis mosaic. There's uh, uh, there's quite a few different ones, but that's what it ends up being 90% of time. Or streak viruses, hemp streak virus, tomato streak virus. Those ones also express, you know, very similarly in, in visual inspection. So um, we actually did a video recently on mosaic virus versus um, natural variegation on my YouTube channel where we showed both of them, you know, with in the same greenhouse basically from a mm -hmm. huge phenol hunt we did so and you can see the the mosaic virus plants kind of like have node spacings all off these structures all reduced they like it looks look, sick yeah. they look sick like there's and if you see a naturally variegated cannabis plant like it looks good it looks healthy like it's got the right coloring other than the weird blotchiness that is variegation and i mean if you if you want to be real, I mean, you should always be cautious, right? If you think you have a virus, like at least isolate the plant, get a test, make sure. But most of the time, if unless you, it's really displaying signs of being a sick plant, like I think variegation is a lot more common in cannabis than people realize. And they and people could be picking out these plants and tossing them away, like 
um, because they think they're sick and really they're just tossing away like really awesome genetics. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I've also seen too. So I was at a grow and saw mosaic virus only express under one lighting company and not the other three when all the moms were exactly the same. But it, it, under that one light, all of a sudden the thing went haywire. All nutrients were the same. Climate was the same. Room size was identical. You know, there was no other variables. So um, it's, it's a strange thing where the plant, you know, can suppress it when it's healthy. And then if you have one little variable that's off, suddenly the virus comes raging into the plant. And I've always found that really bizarre about the viruses. But if, if people are trying to identify that, um, just to cover that real quick, agdia.com does have lots of different amino test strips um, that you can uh, test your stuff for, for, you know, tobacco streak virus, uh, tomato streak virus, cucumber mosaic. Um, this is the really good one if you're going to go into uh, testing, um, just because it tests for so many di different types of viruses, uh, along with TMV. It also has cu cucumber mosaic um, uh, and patient necrosis spot virus, uh, two-spotted virus. So it really helps you kind of, you know, blanketly test across the board with what you got. So um, if you're interested in that uh, and you are trying to, you know, work on a bigger facility, they are one of the better resources that's out there right now. I've had several, uh, I've had hemp type plants um, that have been naturally variegated. I have had chem dog that's been naturally variegated. I had one called white on white. Um, so my chem dog and my white on white were both in outdoor lighting, no, no, um, no uh, artificial lighting. So I don't know, but they were super pretty. And honestly, they were just home fun grows. They, I wasn't being serious. I was just dicking around. So um, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, if it has a virus, I got to get rid of it. I'm just like, oh, no, let's see what happened. <laughs> and they turned out to be really good, really good. I've also seen two in Oklahoma. In fact, one of the, the one I use all my pictures for education for mosaic virus. I can show you the mom of the one strain that has it in the mom room. By the time we get to flowering room, half the plants have it because they're not cleaning the pruners. <laughs> Uh, yeah, cleanliness so, is next to godliness. You gotta have sanitary conditions. <laughs> and that's a great topic too. Um, uh, we actually had a incident recently. We had a couple of burn marks on the plants from mixing our chlorine a little too high for the pruners. So you know you do have to be uh, mindful too on the on the extreme end. But if you uh, you can't use alcohol for cleaning your pruners for virals, you'll just spread the virals. Uh, HLV actually will survive in alcohol. You have to use chlorine or bleach or peroxide. Um, you know, pool chlorine can work if you don't have bleach. Thailand bleach isn't the easiest thing to get, so we make our own with pool chlorine. <laughs> so. I mean, work with what you got, right? So you also do work with aquaponics, which is one of the other things I was excited to talk yeah. to you about. I'd love to hear about your, your what you've been up to recently. Yeah, so I relocated from Colorado to New Jersey in April of 2020 to work with an aquaponics company. Um, uh, uh, shore organics slash 420 organics. Um, so we have two different arms. We have our hemp arm and then we have our, um, our you know, THC arm. Um, so when New Jersey decided and voted for adult use, um, my bosses who own a, or have been doing aquaponics with uh, produce, they were growing, um, you know, organic, clean, uh, low, you know, like aquaponic, you know, low water, low carbon footprint, green, um, lettuce, produce, tomatoes, peppers, um, for not only their own family, but some other families that had kids with special dietary needs. And so, um, 
they wanted to get into hemp and try it with hemp. So we do that. And then um, they also wanted, and this all came about with the rec um, vote. They wanted to get into also, you know, the THC arm of it, but um, New Jersey has been really slow at getting that all up and running. And so we finally got approval for our conditional license when it's going to be a micro grow. So it's not going to be a large operation. Um, but yeah, so we grow using aquaponic methods, um, right? I think we're on our, I don't know. We've been, we've been dicking around with, uh, you know, playing with different setups and whatnot. Uh, and I think we're on our second or third grow of the final kind of setup that we've decided to go with, which I, it's kind of a mixed mixture of you know aquaponic techniques um but essentially it's a closed loop system um we don't split up the water for you know like it is all in a closed loop system so um yeah and it's been super fun <laughs> and a lot of learning <laughs> but you know that's about the that's the about the extent of what i know about um how we do it um i've read a lot of research and a lot of ways that different people do it um and everybody kind of does it differently, you know? Cannabis has some special nutrient needs, which are definitely challenging to um, address sometimes. And because we do have a closed loop system, uh, we have to really stay ahead of things because we can't just add nutrients as needed because uh, we're organic certified and blah, blah, blah. So uh, we, we kind of have to, and, and getting a system to bounce back takes time, you know? and you know, just tweaking things takes time and we have to be patient. And if anything happens, then we have to wait for everything to bounce back. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's a cool way to grow for sure. Um, have you noticed anything different with uh, growing in aquaponics so far versus uh, the other plants that you've worked with in the past in Colorado? I mean, I, so my own personal, I've never, I haven't really ever worked with, you know at scale before um i have had my own home grow because it's legal in colorado you can have six plants per person so i would grow six and my son would grow six um and then i did grow hemp type plants i think i had auto two and uh, bayox um that i was growing at the university of northern colorado because i wanted to do some epigenetic experiments like testing stress levels from cloning and does that have an effect on the epigenome which is passed from mother to clone and then clone to clone and then clone to clone. So um, that's the one that didn't make it into my dissertation that I, I'm hoping somebody will pick up and run with because I grew all the plants and I did all the cloning. I just never got around to analyzing it. Um, so all of the plants that I have grown have all been in uh, soil. So this aquaponic thing, like I really had to kind of um, before I moved out to New Jersey, I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I think I watched some of yours. There was one that was like three hours long. I was like, Jesus Christ, what do these guys have to talk about? <laughs> but, um, and, you know, just looking all, you know, uh, at the web and then, you know, uh, different books and papers and stuff like that. Um, it's really hard to learn aquaponics on paper. Like when I got here, it was a lot different than everything I had read. Like, it's just, it's something that you can't really learn without having your hands in it. There's like a five to 10 year gap between where the commercial side of things are and then where the universities are. 
and the university published stuff. And it's there's some newer stuff coming now with the university stuff, but it's why I've turned down three separate offers to do university work with the aquaponics stuff is like the stuff that I, we've done in R&D in the market on the private market is just you know, no, you don't see anybody combining soil food web stuff with that, with aquaponics yet. And you don't see a lot of the, the more newer organic technologies coming into aquaponics in the, in the university stuff yet. It's been, you know, frustrating, I guess, uh, uh, on that side, but it's, you're, you're very much right. Uh, unless you've done any kind of experience, especially with cannabis, you know, it, uh, other than the, the stuff that we've put out, um, it, there isn't a lot of good resources out there right now, certainly not in the free the free sector. I had no um, idea you had so, so many, and I don't know what your site looked like <laughs> back in 2019, beginning of 2020, or, you know, when I was starting to look into this stuff. Um, but there isn't a lot of good information out there. Like it was a struggle finding things. And eventually I was just like, you know what, I'm going to stop looking and just wait till I get there because like, I don't know, <laughs> there just isn't really any good information. Um, and uh, have you heard of Brandon? Yep. He yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he did an aquaponics PhD at University of Guelph. Um, like, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, somebody who actually did like research using aquaponics. And um, I haven't read it all. I've read some of it. But again, it's like, unless you're doing it, it's really hard to read. Yep. And there's one other guy. Um... Uh, Brendan Yep did a paper with another gentleman who used to be up at um, uh, Green Relief. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. Um, both of them have tried to get on the show. Brendan Yep, we actually had scheduled and then he got COVID um, when we were going to oh. have him on. So we haven't been able to reschedule him on. But um, him and there's one other gentleman in Canada that have done a lot of actual research uh, university I skill. I think Brandon, I know who you're talking uh, about and he, his name is escaping me right now. Um, I think it's Brandon something. I don't know. I think we used to have him on our book club, which we do. We like we haven't done it in a while, but we do a thing called the Cannabis Book Club, where we we read the scientific literature, so you don't have to. So basically, we read mm -hmm. a paper and then we break it down so regular people who are not don't have the science vocabulary can understand what was done, why it was done, how it was done, and you know <laughs> what the limitations were and why you shouldn't take uh, everything at face value, like pretty much every cannabis paper you read is going to end with more research needs to be done. So, <laughs> yeah, the other, the other bit is you, a green relief is a great example of a, a lot of the, um, uh, aquaponics companies that, that end up failing. It's not because the system didn't work. It's because of mismanagement or something else, which is what happened with them up there with the, you know, all the dramas that have, and we've covered that in a whole episode as well, but, uh, you know, that's the really sad thing about it. Is a lot of these wonderful, there's another one, uh, South River Aquaponics just had a, a bunch of family issues, emergency health issues and has to sell the farm. They have one of the coolest aquaponics farms that, that's, you know, finan completely financially viable. There's nothing wrong with the technology, but it sometimes gets a bad reputation because of some of these companies not being successful just because of stuff that was completely out of, you know, control of the farm. And uh, yeah. it, it just sucks sometimes. Well, I mean, these things happen, um, you know, like people getting out, you know, or, or, or like selling their cannabis farm, moving somewhere else where they're working for another company. It's like, why are they doing that? They must, they must not know what they're doing. They might, maybe they're not successful. Their farm isn't making any money. And I'm like, 
you know, sometimes people are just done with owning their own business and living at their farm 24 seven and never seeing their family. They just want to be able to get up, go to work and do their job and come home. Like yeah. cannabis is a full-time job. If you're, if it's your farm and you're the owner and you're responsible for everything, like that's rough. And some people just don't like, they just, you know, do it for a few years and they're like, sell my farm and I'm going to go do it for someone else. <laughs> yeah. Or like me, I just prefer to go work on a farm, help them get set up for a while and go on, see the world, travel. You know, you I, if I was stuck running a farm, I would have never gone to Thailand or South Africa or any of this other stuff. So it's, it just depends on what path you want to take. I think it's, you know, uh, it depends on where you go. But that, that that's it. just about to circle back to what you're talking about and the lack of information. That's what Marty and I started the show is because there wasn't a good him and I were arguing about how to grow aquaponic cannabis and we realized we were the only two people like on that high level that could have those crazy debates right and then we were like well shoot we should just make a podcast because we're tired of like defending aquaponics as a viable method um, let's just do a podcast and educate people and that's how this show got started so uh, sometimes good things come out of that frustration <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you've got a pretty sweet deal being able to travel everywhere and get people set up. Well, you're you're doing that too. You've traveled to New Jersey and and uh, you know you're doing a similar kind They're of thing. They're not though. using me for my knowledge of aquaponics. Let me tell you, they're using me for um just. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. No, we want to do a breeding program. We want to set up. You know, what we're in in the process of. You know, I've created a bunch of courses. We want to create like a cannabis university where we can have interns, where we can have people actually come to a campus and learn how to grow cannabis from seed all the way to sale. Um, you know, they can learn about the law and policies and um, social equity and the culture and the history and extractions and genetics and like all of the things that you would learn at a university, but very specific to cannabis. Um, and so technically, Although my research part of my PhD was cannabis genetics, my actual PhD is in biological education because all of the PhD degrees at the school that I went to are all education degrees. So not only did I have the research portion of my PhD to do, I also had on top of that the education research and uh, teaching and learning how to teach and teaching how to learn portion of it as well. So it was a very intense um, program, but it set me up perfectly to do something like set up a cannabis university which is when it when we get it up and running will be awesome and then we can have a breeding program because in the u.s because of the usda you can't breed you can't have a hemp breeding program uh, unless you're an academic institution at least that's what the rules say so my boss was just like let's do that <laughs> okay let's do that so i mean that's a large part of my job is um doing that well that's really cool uh, i did want to ask you about another one of your papers here was the, uh, the genetic tools to weed out misconceptions of strain reliability in cannabis and the implications for a, a budding industry so it's one of the more interesting papers and I actually listened you did a whole podcast on gene flow with a, another gentleman um shoot it's blocking the thing now anyways I'll, I'll put it up on the screen here eventually when i when i can find which tab it's on again but uh um she's got so much stuff to, to go over i got a bunch well of so this here. is the one that i this is the one that that launched everything right so this is the first study that i did where i went to different dispensaries 
Um, I examined 30 different strains, 27 of which had a genetic outlier, you know, like something that wouldn't be expected. Um, like if you look at, um, let's see, look at either that one. So that one, so this is what's called a principal comp uh, coordinates analysis. So this is like, I, I don't know, I'm with the Phylos thing, everybody kind of is familiar with the Phylos galaxy. That's like a cloud of data, right? And, and it's like a three-dimensional space and the samples are in space and, you know, relative to other samples, you can tell if things are closely related or not closely related. This is what that is, but it's just in two-dimensional space. So if you can wrap your head around it. So this is only X and Y coordinates, but there are limitless coordinates. Um, so this, you should be able to rotate in three-dimensional space, but this is, shows the most variation in the data. So it's not gonna get any better than this in terms of being the most furthest apart, right? So things that are very closely related genetically or identical will share the same space. So for example, up in this top right corner, you can see a bunch of red dots. Those are all Durban poison and those are all really closely related, which is what we would expect from clone or seed um, relatives. Um, there's also red dots scattered throughout the rest of the cloud. Like there's one straight down, there's one here, there's one over off to the left. Those are not as closely related as that other, as that, that tight cluster. So this tells us that within strains, there is genetic variation that shouldn't exist if they were from the same, like if they were genetically stable from the same seed lot um, or clones. So if you don't have the same genotype or a very similar genotype, we can kind of guess that you're not gonna end up with a similar phenotype. Don't die. <laughs> Right, and then you've got some that are just all over the place. So Blue Dream is these green uh, down here, kind of in the middle, a little off to the to the right, the green dots, those are Blue Dream. And there's a cluster there, but you can also see there's a couple of other Blue Dreams that are a little off. So yeah, so this is just looking at like genetic relatedness within strains and among strains. And so I kind of also uh, color coded from red being what was described online because that's what customers have information about um, as 100% sativa, then going through 50% hybrids are green um, and then the indicas are purple, right? So, but this is all online information and only information that what customers have access to. So databases or what's printed on the package or whatever the case may be. Um, if there was like an indica sativa type split, you might see, you know, all the warm colors clustering together and all the cool colors clustering together, but we don't see that either, unless you really squint, you might. But there's another, um, so this is one of my favorite ways to present data. The other one is the one with the bars. Um, I don't know, go back to the figures. It's probably the first figure I'm guessing, figure one. Hmm. Only two figures. No, there's more figures than that. 
anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but that, that, uh, um, it's what's called a structure graph and it's basically like each bar is an individual and it gives you a genetic proportion of however many genetic groups there are. So, um, you can kind of see if things are genetically identical, different and stuff like that. So that was my first study and it was really cool. That was another investigative study. Like we didn't know what to expect or what we would find. We could have found nothing. Like everything's perfect um, as it should be. That's the one. So like the first one, Durban poison, you can see most of them are almost totally blue. Very, very similar. So this is two genetic groups. It's not Indica sativa. It's just two genetic groups based on the data. Based on the data, the, the software said, you most likely have two genetic groups. And then it, it assigned a proportion of each genetic group to each individual. So most of these Bordurban poisons at the start um, are mostly assigned to the blue genetic group. This Denver one, however, is completely different, almost fully assigned to the other genetic group, which tells me that this is a really, really different genetic sample compared to the other ones. And you can go through and you can see there's Hawaiian, both of those are different. So we don't have a genetic consensus for that. We don't know what it is, not enough samples. Sour diesel, we've got one, two, three, four, five that are genetically very similar and two that are not. And train wreck, they're both completely different. Island sweet skunk, which one of these was tagged as island sweet skink. I decided that it was more than likely island sweet skunk and somebody just has bad penmanship or typed it in wrong or whatever the case may be. But they're all genetically really similar, which is cool. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can go through this 27 of the 30 strains that I sampled had at least one genetic outlier. Island sweet skunk being one that all the samples were genetically similar and the other two only had two samples. Um, yeah, so you can see that's that's kind of what we were chem dog was all really similar, which I was completely surprised at because all of the chem dogs that I had kind of had different names. There was like chem dog 91, chem dog 4, chem dog D. And I didn't I didn't know anything about the whole chem dog story until I started researching it and found I don't know how many people know about the chem dog story about the bag seeds and there were 13 seeds and he grew like four one year and kept one and he called it chem dog I don't know 91 or it was chem dog anyway chem dog four and then it was chem dog I don't know anyway there's this whole big long story this is the kind of variation we would expect to see from bag seed right they're all going to be genetically similar siblings but they're not going to be completely different like we you know saw in the Durban poison so that kind of was really interesting to me that we've got this kind of a vintage strain that's been around for a long time and was grown from separate seeds and has been you know circulating for a while and it still has held together its genetic integrity at least from what i sampled so that was really really cool the um i think the most surprising one for me is the fact that the, your blue dream was very consistent which is dream was very consistent. i've seen schizophrenic differences in blue dream in the u.s well and the, and the funny thing too is that when I did, so for the, the scent analysis, 
I actually did do a terpene and cannabinoid uh, test on those um, just because the variation, like in the Durban poisons that I tested, the smells were completely different. I was like, okay, so what's going on? Um, Blue Dream was also the most consistent in the terpene profile and the cannabinoid profile. And yeah, I don't, maybe in Colorado, I mean, these are, no, actually, these Blue Dreams are from all over the place. So we've got Boulder, Denver, um, Garden City, San Luis Obispo, and San Luis Obispo. Um, but, okay, so we've got mostly Colorado and, and, and California. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was a nice surprise, especially since I think Blue Dream was the original strain that was brought to my attention before I even thought about doing a PhD project that someone was like, I love Blue Dream, but it's different everywhere I go. And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, that's funny because it ended up being <laughs> one of your most consistent. <laughs> I, I'm sure if I, you know, I mean, and this, those samples were bought in 2015. So okay. it's been a while. And perhaps if I did the same study again, the results might not be looking like that. And I think that's one of the coolest parts of your work is you're not doing stuff from the production side. You're just looking at it all from the retail side. And there isn't a lot of good um, studies and work done that's just solely looking at it from that angle, like what is actually hitting the shelves and what is the real world um, you know, side of the the industry because it you know there isn't a lot of study anyone doing actual studies like you're doing uh on that part of it other than states that are trying to you know regulate it which usually have a ulterior motive yeah and you know the thing is like you can't go back to a store and and say i don't think this is blue dream they're gonna laugh at you and be like oh, whatever um but there's also like no nothing to stop anybody like relabeling a jar for a faster sale like if they've got some product that's just not moving like put a Skittles label on it. Like, um, and who's who's gonna who's gonna question that? Who's gonna check that? Who's regulating this? I mean, there is you know like supposed to be seed to sale stuff, but um, I mean everybody's seen it. <laughs> Your eyebrow. <laughs> so so, <laughs> you did a bunch of work with um potency testing as well. We were actually talking about it a little bit before the show started. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, um, well, you know, cause you had some, some really co almost comical findings when you did your, your potency studies versus what was on the store labels. Yeah, so from the smell study, when I did the terpene and cannabinoid profiles, I actually had them tested at a third party like um, uh, lab. Um, and they were kind enough to just do it like, you know, like I'll put you on the paper if you, you know, help me do this. And they were nice enough to do it. And they already had all of their um, certifications and methods and validation and everything already uh, developed. And because it was, you know, a neutral thing, like they had no reason to like give me the wrong numbers. Right. And plus this is research, like it's going to be checked. So. Um, as I was looking at these cannabinoid tests, I was like, TC is 12%, 15%. I don't remember buying anything that had THC that this was like, it doesn't seem like the right numbers. 
And so I pulled it. I kept all the original packaging. I pulled out the original packaging and I was like, well, this one says it's 26, but it tested at 15. And this one says it's 23 and it tested at 12. And, th and they were all like completely different. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And that was just like a side note at the very end of my thesis, uh, my dissertation. It was like, you know, um, there might be something going on here. Uh, but then my advisor was like, I need you to go get more samples, go buy more samples, any, anything you want, like buy some low THC, buy some high THC, uh, make sure you get like a good smattering of indica sativas hybrids, like get it all. So I went and bought some more samples and we had those tested. And then we compared all of the packaging to what our test said. And the average uh, overinflation of the number was about 27% over what was in the package. So that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that labs are inflating numbers. It could be that the samples that are being provided to the labs are, you know, the apical buds, the best buds, you know, um, it could be that, um, you know, the sample prep is um, done to kind of concentrate the THC. It could be that, you know, I just happened to get the bottom of the barrel put into my canister that I purchased at the store. So it's all bottom buds. I don't know. But what, you know, the from, it's about 30 samples. I think it might be like 20, I don't know. It's like 30 samples, I think. Um, uh, all but two were really, really different. Up to 42% higher than the reported value. Or yeah, yeah, up to 42% more THC reported than we, what we tested at. Um, which was crazy. And so we actually have this paper in review at PLOS waiting for them to give us a freaking answer. They've had it for a really long time and they've done two rounds of reviews with different reviewers. They've sent us back two rounds of comments and, and um, reviews to do on the paper, which is kind of unheard of. I don't think they want to publish it because it's going to cause an issue, but it's not something that everybody doesn't already know, right? And I think it's really important to publish findings like this in order for the industry to check itself and, and realign itself and, and correct itself. Did I say that already? I might've. Um, but also to inform consumers that just because it says 30% THC doesn't mean that it is 30% THC. Stop spending your money on THC and start spending your money on quality because THC does not equate to quality. Start using your senses, start smelling things, start looking at things and start learning what your preferences are. It's not all, it's not all about, for some people it is, it's all about getting high, but you know what, go for concentrates then if that's what you wanna do. <laughs> uh, I, I can't agree more. I mean, banana, give me a banana turp, anything. I remember there was like a, a 16 or 17% banana turp. Uh, one I got uh, that dragonfly smoked me out with at um, Emerald Cup one year and it was uh, got me way more high than like the 30% or whatever that I had smoked it with a joint with somebody at one of their booths earlier that night and it was like well yeah because the terpenes are completely modified same thing too with like seizure treatments we do a, I did a bunch of work with sublinguals and you know doing that four to one CBD to THC ratio with that 
you know, a small amount of linalool added, that linalool completely changes when you can have a patient that responds to uh, CBD treatments for seizures uh, or, you know, CBD with a little bit of THC thrown in or even THC treatments or seizures. And then all of a sudden they get an infection or some other health problem and then it doesn't work anymore. Uh, you know, suddenly the treatment isn't, isn't working. And then the, then the medical side of things is like, I'll oh, see, it doesn't work. And it's like, no, it works when they're healthy. Just they have more things going on. But you add a little all to that and it immediately starts working again. Um, and, and we've noticed that with a lot of different pediatric patients that I've worked with uh, firsthand. And it's that kind of little thing where just even just a small, tiny percentage of some of these terpenes can completely change the, the medical impact of, of, of the cannabis treatment, be it smoking or sublinguals or edibles or whatever. And I think people really don't think of the terpenes yet in the same way that they think of the medical impact that the cannabinoids do when cannabinoids are just a fraction of terpenes. There's the type of terpene group, right? So, and, and something else I think about is that at the time of testing, the cannabis had this profile that it's not necessarily the same profile. By the time it hits your body, could be completely different just because Terpenes are volatile. Like a terpene profile from a testing lab is really just a snapshot in time. And not always are you, I mean, packaging matters. Like how is it packaged, stored and all that stuff. Like you can, you can, you can, uh, what do I want to say? Preserve the terpene profile, but who knows what they're doing behind that counter. You know, I mean, if it's your own stash, if it's your own grow, of course, you know what you're doing, but are you going to get your terpene profile done? Probably not because it's really fucking expensive, right? <laughs> You're muted again. We've actually been lab shopping for the best the best thing to do here um, as far as testing for our in-house because we have, you know, we'll be, we'll be close, you know, somewhere between 16 and 20,000 plants here once we have everything all packed out. So, um, uh, we're, you know, we, we want to be able to test all of our stuff in-house and make sure that we know what, what's yeah. going on with our breeding lines and everything. Uh, and um, the average home grower getting a full panel test is is pretty pricey yeah you know yeah it's usually you know in the three to four hundred dollar range for for most states if you want to get everything tested so it's not 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 very affordable for most people unless you're really doing a lot of breeding work or you can justify the price in some other means right but uh that's where having uh i'm sure you're uh quite experienced working all those fun toys I'm, I, I mean, I know how to do it, but in terms of like developing methods, validation, all that stuff, I'm not your girl, but I know people, <laughs> right? That's part of, um, I mean, I know what I don't know. And what I don't know is, you know, that stuff. I know how to read a COA. I know how to read a chromatogram. I know how to, you know, prep the samples and inject the instrument. I know how to do all that stuff, but like if I was to develop to develop a new method to test gummies, I have no fucking clue. <laughs> so I, I know enough to talk about it. I don't know enough to to do it, but that's why you hire people who do, right? Um, is there any um, uh, common myths that you would love to dispel about the, the genetics of cannabis or uh, not a polyploid? It's not a polyploid. It's almost never a polyploid. If you have some weird growth formation, like if you have a flat stem or if you have a crested, it's not a polyploid. Never. <laughs> there are very few polyploids in cannabis. Most of the polyploids out there, as far as I know of, um, I've had a good discussion on LinkedIn the other night. 
um, that there may be more polyploid, but you can't tell a polyploid just by looking at it. So polyploidy is a complete duplicate set of chromosomes. There might be one extra set or two extra sets, three, four, five, whatever. So we are diploid. So we have two sets of chromosomes, one set from mom, one set from dad. Cannabis is also diploid. It has one set of chromosomes from mom, one set of chromosomes from whoever the pollen donor is. Um, so if you are a polyploid, say a triploid, you're gonna have three whole entire sets of chromosomes. A tetraploid is gonna have four whole sets of chromosomes. There are natural polyploids in the plant world. Plants are very good at doing really weird shit because usually it's a survival thing. Like they can't just get up and move. So they need more tools in their toolbox to be able to survive where they're at and get to reproductive age. Um, so like the strawberries that we buy in the supermarket, they're octoploids, generally speaking. They're diploids as well, normally in the wild. Um, dandelions are generally triploid, uh, which means they're completely asexual. They, they aren't compatible with each other. Um, <clears throat> let's see, what else? Peanuts, bananas, cotton are all polyploids. Um, but you can't tell by looking at something generally speaking, like you can tell with strawberry because an octoploid needs a lot of space to put all those chromosomes, their cells are bigger, so you end up with a bigger fruit. But generally speaking, if you have a, a, a triploid and a diploid cannabis plant and you look at it, you're not gonna be able to tell any difference. So if you're looking at a flower and it's weird or it's got like multiple sets of leaves or it's got like a flattened stem that's really wide, that's just a mutation, a local mutation oh. that leading to I've a weird seen that fasciation with the flat stalk it's almost always in cbd lines or hemp lines that have been really you know interbred um yeah heavily. and it can be so it can be um it can be heritable so if whatever plant picked up this weird mutation that mutation can be passed to the next generation it also might not be it could be something in the environment that is leading to the mutation so mutations just like in people like if you um, are out in the sun too much, you might get skin cancer. It's kind of like a um, out of control growth, right? It's kind of like a tumor. Um, and that can be from chemicals, UV, all kinds of things can mess up your DNA to the point where you get an abnormal um, out of control growth. Same thing with plants. So there could be chemical, it could be a pest, it could be a pathogen, it could be a mutation, just a, a random freaking mutation something went to shit in, in cell division and it just happened like there's lots of things so but yeah that's that's one of my that's one of my things that really I just kind of go oh when somebody puts a picture of a faciation and says it's a polyploid um <laughs> that's one of them I have a bunch of them but um <clears throat> the variegation thing is another one like it's tmv it's not tmv <laughs> um oh my goodness there's a whole bunch of stuff on my instagram i have a whole like set actually it was a social media takeover for jason wilson um who does the curious about cannabis uh, podcast and education series he let a couple of his educators do a social media takeover for a week and so i made a bunch of like infographics basically on various like cannabis myths um and and misinformation and things like that um like the skunk smell that everybody you know associates with fresh grown cannabis 
is not really a terpene. It's uh, it's a different compound. It's a thiol, um, and they only just really discovered it a couple of years ago. They actually like pinpointed and they're like, okay, this is what's making that smell. And it's the same smell. It's the same compound. It's in the same family of compounds that make skunks smell the way they do. And also attributes to like that skunky flavor that beer gets when you, when it's in the wrong kind of bottle. Um, you know, it's been, it's been light, um, exposed to light or oxygen or whatever. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of them if anyone's interested. <laughs> the only person I know of that I've seen any kind of published work on from polyploidy stuff was uh, there's a guy in uh, Southern California. His name is um, Eric Matherson. Uh, he's a, a geneticist in, in cannabis. He's the only person I've seen that's done any kind of mapping or, or anything like that on the polyploidy stuff uh, genetically. But he'd be the one oh. person uh, if you are looking to, for more info on that I know of. So there is a paper. And that came out. I could find it. Of course, I'm not going to be able to. And, uh, you know, Dark Heart Nurseries has a triploid line, and Oregon CBD has a triploid line. Um, which, which is not that they, they're not natural. They, they induced polyploidy purposefully to make these triploid plants. Um, Okay, so are they are they just doing colchicine to induce the poly, polyploidy or what's the uh, method on that? I'm not. I think it was cool. I don't know what they. I mean, there's a couple of different um, ways you can go about it, but yeah, they stall the cell division at a certain point, um, and it's done chemically. I'm colchicine is one of the ways to do that. So there's a, a a paper called Polyploidization for the Genetic Improvement of Cannabis Sativa, and it's. Parsons, Jessica Parsons is the first author, oh. and there's a few more of them. But that's a really good paper, and we covered it on our um, Cannabis Book Club. But uh, yeah, they induced <laughs> they induced polyploidy. They had two different strains induced polyploidy. One of the strains, all the plants died. The other strain, I think only nine of the twelve plants survived. So polyploidy is difficult. Like it's not you can't just like do it. It's not always successful. Um, and, you know, I saw a picture of uh, somebody made an octoploid cannabis plant and oh man, did that thing look just sick as fuck. It was tiny, it was all like gnarly, like it was not a healthy plant. So um, polyploidy is not, not as easy as some might think it is. Um, but yeah, the benefit to having a polyploid such as uh, with, with odd numbers. So you'd want to have like three or five sets of chromosomes is that you can't pollinate, they, they mismatch. And so you can grow outside and potentially not have to worry about being cross-pollinated by somebody who has a male around or a nearby hemp farm or whatever. So that's one of the benefits of kind of um, developing these polyploids. It's not to make bigger, better, stronger, faster, more potent weed, it's really, so that you can have sun-grown cannabis without as much of a worry about your whole crop being ruined and going to seed. Yeah, especially if you're a bigger scale, that can definitely happen easily. Uh, one neighbor that doesn't, and in fact, we've, we actively regularly drive around out here, even where we are, to make sure that none of the neighbors have any males going. And we're like, hey, look, 
you give me that male plant, you kill that male plant, we'll give you two female plants for free. Just get rid of the males. <laughs> but there was a guy, uh, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in, in Buriram in, in, in the, um, Thailand. There was a guy with a pickup truck driving around selling clones. Half of them are selling seedlings that he just germinated. Half of them are males. And they're flowering, he's pollinating the city as he drives around. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, how do you deal with people that don't understand pollination? You know, that's, it's I mean, it's really, it's really tough. Somebody asked me this a long, a while ago. And I was like, you know, if you had like a, a Persian cat that was like a blue um, metal, you know, show cat, intact female, you wouldn't let her outside. She's going to get, you know, done by one of the alley cats. And then you're going to have like, you know, mutt babies. So keep your, keep your beautiful blue ribbon Persian cat inside. Like that's the only way you can prevent that cat from becoming pregnant from something that you don't want it to breed with. And unfortunately I feel kind of the same way about cannabis at the moment. Like if you really don't want seeds, if you really don't want to have cross-pollination, the only way really to avoid it is to bring them inside. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we're, we're, we're just finished up uh, installing the UV lights for our, to keep the pollen out of our, our breeding rooms. So. Yeah. Always fun. Stupid <laughs> hemp. Just kidding. Right. <laughs> well, that's the other bit too. You could have somebody who's growing hemp or there could be a hemp in a ditch nearby, especially if you're in like Nebraska or anywhere oh, in yeah. northern West. There's tons of stuff around. Even Colorado, I've seen it all over. Oh, wild. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yeah, it might not even be like another grow. It could just be random feral cannabis growing somewhere. Um, or it could be, I mean, like there are hemp farmers that grow for, for seed, you know, they have to have the males. Otherwise you're ruining their crop by not letting them have that. Yeah. Well, and I think this is where it comes down to having agricultural zones and saying, okay, well, this zone, everyone can open pollinate all their hemp. And then on yeah but cannabis is such a prolific pollinator and the grains are so small and they go so far i'm not entirely convinced that that would actually work well people say like that it's four miles but i know for a fact that people have been pollinated in spain and portugal from morocco so it's like and it depends on like <laughs> it depends on wind currents and if you're you know like up against the rocky mountains is going to be different than if you're in like northern california or you know like it did or out in nebraska like it just it's uh, more research needs to be done well that in humidity <laughs> too i've noticed the higher the humidity it doesn't seem to drift as much so it often made me wonder if people could run like misting systems around the outside of us like what we've even considered here running misting systems on the outside of these greenhouses on hot days one for temperature control to kind of chill the air as it comes into the greenhouse through the screen walls, but also as a means of, you know, pollen uh, reduction. Yeah, it'll take, the water will take the pollen out of the air and like, you know, a physical thing to like pull it down, but also the water is going to disrupt the pollen. It'll, you know, make it expand and explode and then it's not viable. So treating, having some sort of water treatment, I think is a, if you can, you know, that's also a possible solution. Well, here, here we get the fog in the rice fields in the mornings in the wet season, and that kind of takes care of that. 
Good. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, any other uh, um, uh, studies that you or things that you noticed when you were studying the retail side versus you know uh, of products? Because you, you you know again you're you're one of the people that's actually really dug into that topic more than anything else. I know you've covered quite a bit, but is there any other things that really were surprising on the retail side that you were just like, whoa? Um, not really. I mean, yeah, no, not really. I mean, I think, I think I covered most of what people were asking you know, and I, I found some interesting things like some of, and, you know, it being an exploratory study, most of this stuff, I didn't, you'll, I didn't have any hypotheses. I didn't have any, like, here's what I think is going to, we're going to see. It was just like, this is what I'm going to do. Let's see what happens. <laughs> um, and I really feel like that's a good way. That's a better way to do science is to come at it with no, like expectations, no preconceived notions, like, I want to find this, so I'm going to do that. Like, I feel like that is really a biased way to conduct scientific studies. And so I think it's better, like, I don't know what's what we're going to see. Like, here are my aims. Like, but in, in terms of having a hypothesis, I think that automatically sets you up for having a biased study in, in a lot of cases. So um, in that sense, it was like super fun because I'm like, hey, let's do this and see what we see. And in every single case, it wouldn't have mattered what we found in every single case. It would have been a really interesting story, right? Cause if, if I did and I, I found all these strains and they all turned out to be really genetically, you know, similar where they were supposed to, I'd be like, wow, where's all this like reported variation from consumers coming from then the genetics are all intact. They're all, you know, identifying as what they're supposed to be. So what's going on here. Then we would start looking at environmental inputs. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just super fun and, uh, was glad that I was able to do it because researching cannabis, especially at academic institutions is damn near impossible. And especially when I started in 2015, like that was unheard of and with no funding, <laughs> I mean, science is really expensive to conduct. Uh, so it was, um, interesting trying to piecemeal together, like, little bits of funding here and there to get it all done but you know hey that's very um parallel to how the cannabis industry is anyway right we have to think outside the box because no one lets you do anything so <laughs> yeah it can be hard to do i know i've been worked we were talking about this the other day um i've worked a lot with lactobacillus dosing and it's hard to find a university that wants to study the that for any kind of a dimension it's like well this is ultra cheap anyone can use it it seems to eliminate e coli and salmonella and a bunch of other pathogens why is no one testing this like it seems crazy so it can that's be another great reason for us to start a cannabis university so that we can do some of these studies and we can help find funding or or provide funding for studies that people want to do on cannabis but they can't do at you know the traditional places that do this kind of research you know fortunately some universities are jumping on board the hemp train uh since that is federally legal now but um it's got limitations <laughs> and uh you know there's still a lot of universities that don't want to touch 
hemp even because it's all cannabis you know uh have you done any work with cbd i know in one of your shows i was doing research you, you touched on cbd lines and stuff like that a little bit um um so i did include cbd uh in cbd type plants in that uh study where i also included the the federal weed um and at shore organics we do grow cbd type hemp and i did work for mile high labs for a little bit and they were cbd like producers um so um i know a little bit about cbd i don't know like I, I, I take it almost daily and I give it to my dogs. <laughs> You're muted a again. Lot people, a lot of people still get relief from, um, from CBD and there's still a, a high demand for CBD products. I think more than people kind of realize. And what uh, another thing that people don't realize, there went from like 57 or 60,000 CBD licenses uh, in the last couple of years to this year, I think was around 2000. So the production is like crashed uh, in, in the United States. And it makes you wonder, you know, if that is gonna end up being a, a, a higher price product again, just because of the, how much production is reduced. I think, I think we're gonna have a couple of waves where like, you know, cause everybody wanted to start growing hemp and producing CBD. And then it was market was flooded and people can sell their hemp or you know or their cbd for that matter then everyone had this surplus of cbd couldn't sell it so then people started you know finding these loopholes in the usda guidelines and they started uh synthesizing other cannabinoids from cbd which you know i get it um there's a loophole and people want to recoup their investment right um but now people are gun shy because it's very difficult to grow hemp and stay compliant. Um, and it's very, it's pretty risky because you have to, if you, if, if your crop goes hot, you got to destroy it all. So why the fuck would you grow it? Like, and risk it all. A lot of farmers have gone back to their traditional farming and stopped trying to make money with, with hemp or, you know, growing cannabis. And, but, but the CBD market is still there. All those people that have been, that were taking CBD, that have started taking CBD, or that are interested, though all those people are still there. Um, and as people are not growing so much CBD hemp anymore, there's gonna the demand is still there, but no one's making it. So I think we're gonna go through another wave where the price of CBD is gonna go up. There's not gonna be enough farmers, so the price is gonna go up, and people are gonna be like, oh, I can make money growing hemp, and then the market will be <laughs> saturated again. Um, but also i do think because of what happened there now we have other uh strains and cultivars and and types we've got cbg type cannabis now that doesn't produce much thc or cbd it produces cbg um we have been looking for other not we being my company but like just in general the industry has been looking for more diverse cannabis uh profiles so things like cbc um, THCV, CBDV. And so I think, uh, I think breeders are diversifying what they're looking for. So yeah, I think we're, I think it's, I, I don't know. I mean, it's such a new industry. Of course, we're going to go through all these growing pains, right? And cannabis is relatively, you know, cannabis, THC type cannabis 
<laughs> wasn't for everybody when it was illegal, but now a lot more people are like, oh, well, maybe now that it's legal, maybe I'll try a gummy or something before bed and see how George and I, you know, <laughs> like, well, watch Friends and see if it's funnier. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people are realizing like CBD can be a great supplement to your everyday wellness, like put it in your coffee, my pets, like I buy CBD that is rent. It's like mixed with bacon fat because they love bacon and that's how they get their CBD. And I, you know, I, um, it's just the industry is so new. Right. And they just, you know, the consumers just started learning about CBD and then there's CBG on the market and then there's CBC and then there's this and there's CBN and blah, blah, blah. It's like, ah, what are all these things? And, uh, I think it's going to be a while before people catch up and realize, um, or learn about all these different things, but all of it is fun and exciting. There's also the FDA is talking about doing the next release for rules for CBD soon, which is going to be interesting to see where where they come down on things to see if they try to push it towards pharma or if they're going to let people actually work with it. Because there's no reason why you know any you know any of those should be solely in the realm of pharmaceuticals uh, at all. Well. I get the frustration with with the FDA and I mean they have been relatively hands off and you like just play by the rules and we'll be cool if you're cool. Um but now people are doing things that are kind of not really playing by the rules like putting CBD into food, beverages, cosmetics and it's like the FDA's job is to uphold the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. Like that's one of their jobs. Don't put drugs in food, drink, and cosmetics. And CBD approved drugs. You can't do that. So stop doing that. <laughs> or they're going to be well, like, no more CBD. I mean, yeah, but it's it's only that way because CW Pharma basically paid off the FDA to get what they wanted. They're, they're also... They they're, put the data the that they well. needed to put on the FDA's desk to get their drug approved. They're going to oh, do yeah. it with... They're going to do it with CBG and probably several other cannabinoids that they've been testing for various indications as medicine. The FDA has said, great, we've got their data. You can't, you can't skirt on their coattails and tell us you have the safety data because they spent millions, probably they spent millions of dollars doing that research to say that CBD is safe for this use. Right. So we can't just go, yeah, see, they made, they, they, told you know they did all the research like that's not cool that that uh, i know and this is probably really unpopular but um we can't they can't do that like the hemp industry could have put together their own data and research and said we've done the research too it is safe and i'm sure if we did that the fda would be like all right that's what we wanted to see no one's done that we could do the same thing with cbg CBDV, like whatever, and just get that data on their desk and say, it's safe. Can we sell this? But no one's done it to their level of um, standard, which is really annoying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, part of that too is funding. Like that's, you know. Yeah. Well, GW's Pharmaceuticals has a lot of money to do this research. But if the hemp industry came together as a collective, they could do the research. But yeah. we can't come together as an entire industry because everybody's 
competing, you know? But yeah, no, you can't put it in food and beverages and cosmetics. Like they're just, and they, at the moment, they've just said, don't do that. Stop doing that. But they could at any point say no more CBD for anybody. It's a drug. Yeah. And I think that would be completely insane. And, and there's no reason to kill all the jobs that it's created. Um, I don't think they're going to do that. I think they might, um, they might put some tighter controls, you know, I would, I would love to see them just do ISO certification for all the labs. Like, cool. You want to make food? That's fine. But you got to extract and have everything in an ISO certified lab. That'd be nice. Food safety protocols and meet them in the middle. And I think that's, that would give you that cleanliness that these sick patients need for the quality of product uh, and still allow people to kind of, you know, have some flexibility with, with, you know, final product formulations. I mean, I think, yes, I think there's definitely some middle ground that could be reached. Um, I don't think that the FDA necessarily wants to put the kibosh on CBD because I think underneath it all, they do realize that it is helping a lot of people and there are a lot of companies out there doing the right thing and making good products there's always going to be bad actors in any industry it's not just the cannabis industry like some people are just fuckers you know um but they do i yeah i i don't think that they want to take it away yeah it can be uh uh it definitely is always a minefield when it comes to regulation in cannabis i know we're we're about to get two rounds of regulations here in january and again in march so uh, you never know what'll happen until it happens. Yeah. I mean, regulation in cannabis is definitely a doozy, but you know, regulation in any industry, I think is probably a tough job. <laughs> for sure. Alrighty, well, uh, we've kept you uh, for for an uh, hour and a half. I don't want to keep take up your whole morning, or I guess evening. evening uh, it's 10.30 my time. I'm up so late. I'm an old lady. I've got a meeting in the morning. No, it was a okay. pleasure to be here and I love talking to you. I hope your viewers enjoyed it. I wanted to uh, make sure everybody knew about your different things here uh, uh, before we let you go. Um, you guys can check her out. She has a wonderful set of courses over at uh, 420organicseducation.com. They have a bunch of uh, uh, cannabis education courses. And then they have uh, Anna Schwab, uh, or Anna dot, let me see, make sure I get this right on the thing, Anna dot the cannabis dot geneticist. Yep, with periods in between. Um, uh, if you're listening to us in audio format, um, so that you can find her on Instagram, uh, and then you can check out her website, Anna Schwab.com, A-N-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-B-E.com. So I'm super easy to find on Google. If you just type in Anna Schwabi cannabis, everything will pop up. And I do try to put everything on my website. So there's links to like cannabis education. If you click on that, that'll take you to the courses. There's on the, along the top research podcasts and webcasts. And I'll add this one to that whenever it comes out. Um, media and press. I've got my art and botanical. I am a botanical illustrator. Sometimes when I feel like it, I just did a cannabis one that looked pretty cool. Um, there it is. And then presentations and videos and stuff like that. So, and then the, all the links to my social socials as well. Are there somewhere? Maybe. Yeah. Right. 
underneath. Awesome. And lots of links to your papers and all of your work and everything. It's really, really great resource for people. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. We'll definitely have to uh, talk to you again in the future. I definitely hope to come by and see you guys. I've actually talked to Matt over there at Shore Organics in the past. I was actually looking at my, my previous chats when you mentioned that earlier in the episode. Um, but yeah, they're, they're actually pretty close to, you guys are pretty close to uh, where my father lives. So I'll definitely have to pop by. And, awesome. Uh, yeah, we're in, our farm it. is in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the Pine Barrens. Like you wouldn't know it if you didn't know it was there. It's kind of hidden away and it's freaking beautiful out here. Don't listen to people when they tell you New Jersey sucks. That's just the North part. <laughs> <laughs> or well, stay away from New Jersey. It's horrible. Don't come here. <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah no it was so good to talk to you i really enjoyed it thanks for having me i appreciate it yeah thank you so much for taking the time to come on and telling us about all your awesome research papers and you know it's nice to talk to someone that's done a lot more on the retail side of research on the in terms of what's actually hitting the shelves more than just what you know everyone's showing off you know what i mean so yeah yeah all right thanks that's so sweet well, <laughs> all right well i will talk to you again soon i'm sure Oh, yeah. Thanks All a lot. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Have a good evening. And that was a, a wonderful episode. Again, be sure to check her out uh, at her website, AnnaSchwab.com. Anna um, as we wrap up the episode, uh, also be sure to tune in January 14th and 15th um, from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we will have a whole bunch of different awesome speakers. I'll be speaking first, followed by Shannon from... Uh, uh, South Africa over at Sweetwater Aquaponics, um, then at Quilitas up in Canada. We'll have um, um, uh, a whole whole bunch of great people. And then we have Stuart, uh, Stuart Farms from Canada. We have um, Vertica Aquaponics from Oklahoma. We have the Commercial Cultivation Panel uh, with uh, Brandon Rust, uh, Dutch Blooms, myself, uh, Bain from Vertica, and, and a whole bunch of other awesome people uh, will be on there talking about um, you know, commercial, the current state of commercial cultivation and, and how they've worked with different aquaponic facilities. Uh, Brennan Rust has been working with um, native provisions down there in Oklahoma. So he's got a bunch of cool stuff to tell us about, you know, combining living soil with aquaponic feeding as well. So I'm really stoked on that. Kevin McKernan is going to be talking to us about some of the latest HLVD uh, and aspergillus testing and a bunch of the other funky stuff that he's been working on. I'm really excited about that. Matthew Gates is going to be talking to us about pest management. Uh, Matthew uh, Pugnet, he's got a bunch of cool pump systems and pump stuff. He's going to be talking to us for about half an hour. Uh, and then Roger from True Aquaponics is going to talk to us about nutrients for a little bit. Uh, and then we'll have our homegrown panel. We are still looking for a few more people for the homegrown panel. Uh, if you are interested in joining us, we'd love to find a few more people that are growing in the home scale or small scale backyard. Uh, that would like to join us on the panel, please reach out to me at poetandponics at gmail.com. Uh, then we have two Spanish-speaking uh, uh, speakers for the first time. Uh, they're from Mexico, and uh, and then we the next day we have some people from uh, Mexico and Spain uh, and Colombia, I'm sorry, uh, talking to us uh, in Spanish. So we have four Spanish-speaking talks this year, so super stoked on that. Uh, Marty will be joining us, as always, uh, this year as well. We have a really dope breeders panel. I think you guys are going to be excited to to, to hear from uh, uh, as well. We have uh, Rob Bob Aquaponics from Australia, Chris Trump talking to us about the latest um, Korean natural farming stuff that he's been working on and uh, 
Costa Rica. Um, Mary Beth Sanchez, another uh, pest management expert, uh, giving us her, her take on pest control. Um, seems to be a big issue for a lot of people the last year. So we try to get two different people to talk on that with different perspectives. I think you guys will like it. We got Brendan Rust, uh, one of the people that I respect the most out here in the chemistry side of things and, and really learn a lot from. And then we have the famous Mr. Green. Yes, the Mr. Green from the early 2000s. Uh, he will be joining us uh, for the podcast. Uh, he's someone that started my cannabis journey and it's super amazing to host him uh, uh, for an event that I'm putting on and it seems like a dream. And then the other gentleman, which is always awesome to, to talk to, uh, Breeder Steve, again, the grandfather of aquaponic cannabis. Uh, and then we have Justin Hess talking to us from uh, Ichthys from uh, South Africa. They have a, a really cool aquaponic cannabis farm there. And then we have Matt Powers, who's a, a, a guy I've really gotten to know over the last year and someone I highly respect. And his next microbial book is fucking just amazing. Be sure to check that out. Um, really is kind of that next level. If you're into Elaine Ingham or Chris Trump or any of the other people that are really pushing the soil science stuff, he's kind of the next tier when it comes, this next book that he has is like, next level when it comes to mapping all that stuff out and really um you know showing you all the different microbial species this kind of like the stuff that elaine does but but with a, a whole new perspective with more modern technology and more modern analysis with a lot of the um uh, technologies and methods that he's using and then also doing uh, some of the advanced dna testing he's been doing along with his microscope work is really kind of uh, been interesting to see as well. So uh, I, I can't tell you how ex excited I am to have uh, have him on the on the event this year. And he's also done you know a lot of work with aquaponics people and all kinds of stuff in the past as well. So just a really cool list of speakers for this year's virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. And we will have another. Uh, if you haven't checked out the previous years, um, be sure to check them out. We have the pre previous two years uh, both on the website potentponics.com or as a playlist here on the uh, potentponics YouTube channel. Or if you're listening to this in audio format. Um, you can find each of the talks in one hour uh, segments listed on the same platform that you found the show. All right, guys, uh, thanks for watching and uh, we will catch you guys uh, next week. I don't have the guest booked. I actually um, didn't know if I was gonna, what was going on with my immigration stuff, if I was gonna have to uh, deal with some headaches, but I actually got my, my stuff all through yesterday. So I'm now uh, officially, uh, officially a, a Thai uh, resident for the moment. So that's fun. So really excited about that. Um, it took a lot of pain in the ass and paperwork are stuff done up. So um, yeah, I'll be here for a bit at least. Um, thanks everybody for watching. Uh, you can find us on uh, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, uh, iTunes, all the things. And you can find our other show, Dat Smoke Show over at Dat Smoke Show. Uh, on YouTube or on iTunes or on SoundCloud. I don't think we have that one on Spotify yet. I got to fix that, but we'll work on getting that all sorted for you guys. All right, guys, thanks a lot. And we'll be back again next week. Cheers, please.